pretty much do transports from kind of like the critical access type hospitals to like a surgical, let's say like surgical center or a heart center or a stroke center, stuff like that. It's pretty much, we get a lot of calls from hospitals that don't have, you know, they do their, obviously they do their absolute best, but sometimes certain hospitals, especially in a more rural area, they don't have the means to give total care to that patient. So we will do a lot of those kind of like ICU transfers of to cath labs, to sur to surgeries, just to a higher level ICU ECMO transfers. Welcome to MDF Instruments Crafting Wellness Podcast. Today, I'm really excited. We have a flight nurse on our podcast today. Hey guys, my name is Kinsley. I am a transport nurse. I'm a Georgia native, um, and I am 27 years old, so a little on the younger end for my profession. I've been flying for about two years now, and I absolutely love my job. Yeah, that's so exciting. You've seen a little bit on your TikTok about what a day in the life is like for you. But before we get into all of that, I'm just curious, how did this happen? Did you always know like nursing was a thing and then you found transport nursing? Or can you kind of tell us your origin story, if you will, of how you found this career and what spoke to you about it? Honestly, I was not one of those like lifer nurses. Like I did not really have a concept of what nursing was and could be when I was younger I thought I was going to do something in like nutrition and dietetics maybe because I did like science um but I was kind of introduced to nursing when I was really a junior in high school I got pretty sick had some chronic health issues and I was introduced to the idea of different types of nursing from the inpatient setting to also the outpatient setting and one of my mom's best friends is was a nurse practitioner at the time. So I sat down with her and talked to her about her path. And that kind of set me kind of on the nursing path and kind of throughout school, like once I was accepted into the nursing program, I started to put the pieces together. I remember it was my sophomore year. Um, it was my, my pathophysiology class. Absolutely loved that class. One of my teachers was a nurse practitioner and the trauma burn ICU. And then the other one was a flight nurse. And I just remember the stories that she would tell about her, about both of them truly. But I just remember my professor that was a flight nurse. I just remember her stories were just so intriguing to me. And on the other hand, my nurse practitioner professor, like just the critical care aspect also. So I knew I wanted to do something in critical care and then the flight nursing thing just kind of like it was always in the back of my head. Um, so I knew I wanted to do ICU or level one ER just because that's part of the prerequisites in order to land a flight nurse job. So I just kind of, I always kind of kept it in the back of my mind as like my goal. And then when I was a new grad in the ICU, my mentor was a flight nurse. So it all just kind of like really came together for me. I got a lot of great advice over the years from all of my mentors before I took this job. And it just kind of really fell into place. Yeah, it's so interesting because I talk to all different kinds of healthcare professionals and it always seems like, especially with nursing, there's so many different avenues you can take. Like I get really lost. I'm like, wow, you, and you can start doing one thing and hop over to something else because the skills you learned there are what you need to do here. Um, can you talk a little bit about what uh, schooling was like and training was like? Because I think I noticed uh, something that you had posted about, and I'm going to reference it really fast. How do I become a flight nurse? And you talk about the three to five years in the ICU or level one, the um, alphabet course, the Trump course, national certification, um, and some flight companies also require nurses to obtain an NREMT or paramedic license. So can you talk a little bit? That sounds like a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It really, it really is a lot, especially when you kind of get into the thick of it. But I started that process when I was really young in my nursing career also, just because I knew truly where I wanted 
my path to go, I pretty much immediately when I hit, I want to say with my national certification, I got the CCRN, which is the critical care um, national certification. I pretty much started studying for that within a year of being a nurse. And then I took it because you have to have, I want to say 1,750 hours of patient contact time in an ICU setting. So pretty much when I hit that mark, I, I took the exam. And then as far as the alphabet courses, so ACLS and PALS, that's, those are pretty much standard requirements for all ICUs. PALS may not necessarily unless you're pediatrics, but I obtained both of those, both PALS and ACLS within my first two, 18 months to two years also of being a nurse. So I like jumped on everything pretty quickly. And then the trauma course, I also, that was also within the first, that was probably a little over two years I took the trauma course. And then I took another trauma course, uh, like a pre-hospital based trauma course once I took this job, just because as nurses, we don't, unless you were a paramedic prior, you don't have any pre-hospital experience, um, which is why having a nurse in hearing is so great for the environment. I got all of those things before I took the job. And then I actually I completed an EMT course while I was on orientation here for my job. So I was able to kind of do some rides as like an EMT, completed all that course, did uh, the psychomotor and the cognitive portion as well. I also now have my NR EMT. And it, it was, it, it's a lot of work, but it's like, if, if you really want to do it, you'll make it happen. And I really wanted to do it and I made it happen. <laughs> yes, you did. And that does sound like a lot of work from the time you started nursing school to the time you were able to apply to a job like the one that you have. How long would you say, I know you sound like you were a little bit on the fast track. You were, art, yeah. you were multitasking, be able to take one on top of the other simultaneously, maybe. So for your, for your experience in it, how long would you say that that process was like on the fast track, kind of like what you did? I did three years and I tell everybody this, <laughs> I would do five years at a minimum of bedside just because three years, you know, and I'm happy with the way that I did it. I do not regret it because I learned so much about myself as a clinician, as well as myself as a human. You know, I moved to a state where I knew no one. I really had to, I really grew a lot in both of those areas. So I don't necessarily regret doing it that way. I was also so motivated. I was super motivated to be successful here because I said, I was like, I moved states for this job. And if I'm going to fail at it, I'm going to literally die trying. Um, but I, I always tell people, I'm like, just, just do five years at the bedside because every shift at the bedside, you will learn something new. Every shift as a nurse, you'll learn something new. And so I think just five years, you will just be so much more grounded in your craft than at three years, just because at three years, you're like, okay, like I, I kind of figured this thing out, you know? And then it's like, you kind of fine tune those skills, I think in those next two years. And then I think it's a good time. That's just personal take, total personal take. Everyone's different. I clearly did not do it that way. Um, but I do think, you know, at least five is a really, is a really, really solid number and a really good number on an application as well. That's something I say a lot that um, people can't take away your experience. So exactly. however much experience you have, like you'll always have it. That's just more for you to put under your belt. That's going to make you better at any job that you have, whatever it is, the more experience just the more you're going to be able to feel more confident in what you're doing. You're going to know the answers quicker. And it's like bedside, like bedside critical care or ER, like any of those like high duty areas, like if there's so much value and there's so much knowledge in it and that it's like, I feel like sometimes it can get a little bit lost on people, but it's like those years in the ICU that I spent, I loved and I learned so much even in three years, like I learned more than I ever thought that I could have, you know? So it's like, just imagine you have those three years, imagine two more, you know what I mean? There's, and the thing is flight nursing is always going to be there. Like there really is not a rush. So that's what I tell, um, kind of new grads that I talk to that have reached out to me. So I'm like, oh, just 
don't rush it. Enjoy the process. You will learn so much in your first five years on the job. So much that nursing school could not tell you. And so much that will better prepare you to take even better care of patients the more, the more experience that you have. You know, I just think bedside experience is just an invaluable part of any flight nurse, period. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what your shifts are like? Are you mostly on day, night? How long are they? And also, can you walk us through a typical, let's just start with like a normal day that is, um, you know, like an average, if you were to take an average day as a, as a transport nurse. Can you talk a little bit about what that what that looks like? So we do 12s. Um, a lot of places will do 24s, but there, you know, it's kind, it's kind of a toss up. It just depends where you go. Um, I do 12s and I am night shift. Um, so we also do some ground as well. So sometimes I'll clock into a shift. I'll go grab, because we have like our little work phones that we use to communicate with our communication center who pages us out for, who dispatches us for calls. And I'll also see where some of our other teams are. And then I will go kind of check in with our pilots uh, before we do kind of a big briefing. I always do safety briefing prior to um, any, for all shifts. Um, even if it's a small one, we always, always, always communicate with, with our pilots regarding weather, regarding any mechanical issues that may have come up during the day or anything like that. Um, I really appreciate how much safety is like hammered into this arena just because it is, it's a high, it's a high risk area just because you are, you're in a helicopter, right? Or an airplane. So we'll do kind of like a big briefing with, we fly dual pilots. So we have our two pilots, we'll have our communication center on the phone. We'll have myself and then my uh, paramedic partner or my nurse partner. Sometimes we will fly two nurses. Sometimes we'll fly a nurse and a paramedic a critical care paramedic. So we'll kind of all sit around, kind of discuss, you know, who's on, what phones we have, our pilots, who they are, who our mechanic on call is. That's very important. Um, if any sort of mechanical issue arises overnight, they will come and they'll check out the aircraft no matter what time it is. So we'll just kind of discuss if there's anything pending. Sometimes we'll get requests for like a planned transport, maybe it was, sometimes we battle with insurance as far as authorization and stuff like that. Sometimes there will be something waiting for us. Sometimes there will be a very critical patient waiting for us where it's kind of like, go, 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 like check all your stuff, do a briefing real quick. And then we're helicopters already out on the tarmac and we're off. You know, if that doesn't happen, I'll go out and check the aircraft, make sure everything's in the aircraft, all of our airway supplies, all of our oxygen is up to par where it needs to be. Because if it's not, we'll have to refill the oxygen. Just, you know, a lot of the time, it's just like, we're just going, we're going to go on calls. Sometimes we'll do ground and then we'll come back to base to fly um, in the middle of the night. That, that happens a lot. <laughs> really are at the mercy of just whoever really us. So are you um, typically transporting patients from like, for example, a hospital that might not be able to treat someone that another hospital can treat better? Or are you transporting patients like that? Are you, how, what kind of patients are you transporting? Are you transporting organs for um, transplants? I would love to do the organ transport. We, we don't do that, but I've always thought that was a super cool kind of entity of transport, but we pretty much do transports from kind of like the critical access type hospitals to like a surgical, let's say like surgical center or a heart center or a stroke center, stuff like that. It's pretty much, we get a lot of calls from hospitals that don't have, you know, they do their, obviously they do their absolute best, but sometimes certain hospitals, especially in a more rural area, they don't have the means to, give total care to that patient. So we will do a lot of those kind of like ICU transfers of to cath labs, to, sur to surgeries, just to a higher level ICU ECMO transfers. We'll do kind of like ECMO referrals or pre-ECMO. So we're bridging them from a referring facility to ours so that, you know, surgery's already there, surgery's waiting to cannulate pretty much by the time we get there with um, those types of patients. Yeah, and obviously these patients are critical. 
um, together. Otherwise, they wouldn't necessarily need to be flown unless it's a further distance of a place that they need to go to. But and that happens sometimes too. Also, just uh, even like for like more stable patients that may need surgery, but they're stable at the moment, but it's a long distance flight. Those can be those can be um, flown appropriately. Also, yeah, that makes sense. I wonder since patients are so critical, this is a kind of a question I have, you know, in oxygen, obviously we need oxygen to live and, you know, you, people can be on oxygen, but I know that altitude, does altitude affect, um, a person's oxygen and do you guys fl fly at a lower, um, altitude so that that's not really happening a little more risky for patients who are maybe critical who are maybe having trouble with their, keeping their oxygen levels up. Typically well, where we fly, we aren't we aren't so high above sea level. So we'll see that more in like the fixed wing environment for sure. When you see kind of a patient desatting um, with the altitude occasionally, but not, not typically in the aircraft just because we don't fly high. Typically we don't fly high enough um, in order for that to necessarily be a factor, but it's something, it's something that's always considered is the pressure and um, it's like the barometric pressure and oxygen demand as well is always considered. Yes, and when you're um, doing these 12-hour shifts, you said um, usually you'll either have another transport nurse or another um, paramedic who is um, tra a trauma paramedic. So it's it's not just you by yourself. No, okay. no I could not, no way. I could not do this. None of us could do this job solo. There's no way. And again, that's something that I never, you know, there's so much that goes into successfully transporting an ICU patient. You are running so many drips. You are running a ventilator. You are running arterial lines. You are run, set, like you have, there's so much to manage. There's no way. I mean, I'm sure there's probably a way, but the team dynamic, it works. <laughs> it works because it's, a, it's transport to me is like the biggest team sport. Like you have to be able to work very in parallel to your partner. Like you both have to be on the same page. It's a team effort because it really is the two of you and you can walk into a room and it's or like a trauma bay and it is total chaos. But if you and your partner are on the same page and you clearly communicate with them, all of the rest of it is, you of course want to listen to the physician and the nurse and report and everything like that. But there can be a lot going on around you. And as long as you and your partner are very much, you know, on the same page, as far as what your plan is and stuff like that, like it will be a much smoother call, even if the patient decompensates just because you kind of go in with a little bit of a game plan. I'll always try to talk to my partners if we know that we're going on like a pretty critical call, like what are we going to do if this happens? We'll kind of play a little bit of a what if game kind of on the way, just so we can kind of, we can all kind of be on the same wavelength as far as like, okay, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. If this happens, this is what we're going to do. So we can just already have like supplies, drugs, all that stuff. And like when I've done that calls that are super intense, go much better that way. Yeah, I've never been on a helicopter, but I imagine it's probably very loud. Um, <laughs> how what what are the challenges as a transport nurse? That I mean, obviously, I know that you have your stethoscope and your you know, but how do you even hear when you're when you're in a helicopter, which I imagine is very loud and noisy? Is that is that a challenge? And and how do you kind really? Like, so we wear obviously like um, hearing protection and stuff like that. So we can talk to each other. But as far as, which is why an assessment is so important prior to lifting, because you really can't like auscultate when you're in there, you know, like you really can't. So that's why it's, you know, looking at other ways also to assess your patient. You know, if a patient has a pneumothorax, you're going to, you know, look at their chest. You're going to look at their vital signs if that happens in the air. So there are, you know, you have to really be able to nail down your assessment, like very confidently and very accurately. Um, just because when you put 
a patient in the helicopter, like you're taking away other means of assessing. So you just really have to pay attention to other parts of say a respiratory assessment, echipnea, SATs, chest excursion on the vent, your pips go super hot, you know, there are just other ways that you can assess them to kind of figure out what's going on. But again, that's why a primary assessment is so important in, in this part of um, nursing. Do you ever have um, family members, loved ones trying to get on the helicopter? Like, do they, they ever try to, you know, because I know people when their loved ones go in an ambulance, for example, to transport to a different hospital, a different means people are like, hey, can, can we ride along? And a helicopter is only so big. I'm sure with all of the equipment and the two of you and the pilots, I'm sure there's not room for that. But do you ever have any contact with family or loved ones that are trying to put themselves on the ride to be with their loved one that's so critical? So, Actually, we are able to accommodate one family member depending on weight and balance of the aircraft. So each aircraft, airframe, depending on how big it is, we fly a little bit of a bigger airframe so we can normally accommodate a family member. Now, again, sometimes if it's going to be a very involved, sometimes they'll elect to not go. Especially if it's a very involved patient, sometimes we will say, you know, we always like to offer. Sometimes they will elect to not take it, but it's always there. But we always do a safety briefing. It's always a, hey, these are the possibilities. You must stay calm. You must stay in your seatbelt. You must stay with your hearing protection on. So we kind of make that judgment call as well. But we will go through kind of the... And we go through this anyways with um, family members. If they're there at the bedside, we'll kind of go through risks and stuff like that. What is uh, your favorite part of being a transplant? It doesn't have to be one thing. It can be a couple of things. What are your favorite things about what you do? I like not knowing what I'm about to walk into. And that sounds kind of, you know, it's even more than, for me at least, it's even more than kind of an ICU because you never really know what your assignment's going to be. But you can anticipate it a little bit, but it's like on transport, you have no clue what you're going to walk into. It could be a very calm shift, just maybe like a call or two, or you could just be flying all night back to back to back, super critical, and they could range anywhere from post-arrest patient to a neuro patient to it's just the variety that you get is unreal you just and you just never know because sometimes you could get a request for a certain disease process and it could be that disease process but it could also be about four or five other things that are going to be relevant to keeping the patient safe on transport and having a successful transport there's just so like the possibilities are really endless, honestly. And that's what I like about it the most. It's just, it's a challenge every single time. It's a challenge every time I always walk out of a shift being like, okay, especially on those super critical calls. There are some calls where it's a little bit, you know, more calm and it's a little bit more straightforward, but especially on those calls where you're trying one thing after another, after another, after another to have a good patient outcome. I mean, those are the calls that I'll like sit with and I'll be like, okay, what did we do here? We'll debrief about those two as a team. Um, and sometimes as a, it's like a whole um, department as well. We'll do case, like sometimes we'll pull certain ones for like case studies and just learning um, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's constant learning. It really is. And just different ways of doing things and different ways of thinking about certain disease processes. And it's a lot of application. It sounds like you have a lot of autonomy. Um, so much autonomy. And that's why I say five years, five years, everyone, <laughs> just because it's so, it's a lot of responsibility. You are just handed all of this responsibility it's up to me and my partner. There's two of you. And normally with a super critical patient, when we walk into the ICU, you're greeted with, several physicians, a surgical team, a whole team of nurses, respiratory therapists, you're greeted with so many people. And it's like two people manage that patient on transport, you know? So it's, it's a lot of responsibility, which is again, why I say the more bedside experience you have, the better. 
Yeah, what's the longest transport you've done as far as like minutes or hour or how, how what's the longest trip you've had to do? I mean, they can go just because especially a lot of our critical patients also come from a long ways away. So between the time of getting there, stabilizing them, trying to, because sometimes you have to do the bedside procedures, intubations and stuff like that. So that is tasky. So, I mean, they can be a couple of hours long just purely because of distance, not always this super quick turnaround, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, it can be a couple of hours. Yeah, and you're working 12-hour shifts. So are you doing similar to an ICU nurse in the hospital where they do like three on and then have a couple days off? Or how, how, does, that, how does that work for you? I'll do three in a row, um, especially for a night shift, just because it totally messes with your head. <laughs> and I'm not a great night shifter. Which, you know, and I knew my position was going to be night shift and I was going to be on night shift for a while just because my coworkers all have been transport nurses for much longer than I have and deserve this seniority. But yeah, I like to do my three in a row and then we'll also take a call shift every week. So it's three shifts and a call shift. And that call shift is pretty much reserved for if our night, and it's at night. So it's like if our night team is busy on another call and a critical call comes in, they will, they'll dispatch kind of the on-call team, but we'll be on, we're on-call from home. So pretty much just keeping our phones on loud and stuff like that. And so the more experience you have, the longer you get your seniority, um, then eventually you'll be able to go into day shifts. Is that kind of the goal? Yes. (laughs) I think all nurses can kind of feel this. I mean, there are some nurses that are night shifters for life and I totally commend those people. I wish I was you. It would make life a lot easier but I like to live my life outside of work on a day shift schedule. So the flopping back and forth, I've gotten a lot more used to it now um, being on night shift for over, cause I would alternate in the, when I was bedside. So I would spend time on day shift and then time on night shift. So I kind of still got like a little bit of a normal schedule, but being truly on nights has been a really long adjustment period for me. I imagine it's hard. I know that you know there's all kinds of tricks, the blackout curtains and all of that stuff. Can you tell me what time does your shift start? Are you starting at like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m.? Are you starting later? What, what time typically are you starting your 12 hours? So we start at 7, 7 p.m. And our get-off time is more of a, you know, it's what we always kind of say it's more of a suggestion just because sometimes you will get those late calls. And I am no stranger to those late critical calls where you are in the helicopter after six in the morning going to get that ICU patient that needs to come to us, like to the hospital now, that needs that more total definitive care now. And I mean, you know, I think everyone on transport can kind of empathize with this. It's not, you don't get on. If you get out on time, it's a great day. But a lot of the time, that's not always the case. I've gone a couple hours past my get off time and it's all for purpose, right? Like you're not just gonna abandon the patient. <laughs> um, and again, on the flip side, if you're in the helicopter and it's you know 7.30 in the morning, you're gonna finish that call. So you know, you have to be, I think you have to be very adaptable mm-hmm. to do transport just purely because it's organized chaos. Mm-hmm. as far as like shift times and stuff like that like getting off on time and it's just it's a lot and you have to be ready to kind of do whatever within the means of your job let's say the aircraft is down for a mechanical issue and the mechanic's working on it yeah you've got to start driving or yes it's six in the morning but you've got to go pick up this patient like you have to just kind of be able to roll with the punches and even with the patient because again what you get on that dispatch there could be a thousand other things wrong with that patient that is going to be relevant to you and your treatment of them. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a job for people who are really OCD, like I clock in at this time and I clock out at this time and I'm very right. time. It feels like you have to be very flexible. And in those cases, if you're working like two or three extra hours past your 12-hour shift, are you still expected to come in, obviously, for your next shift right on time? So you're just not getting as much rest and sleep. Uh, so we have to at a minimum get 10 hours of downtime it's about 10 to 12 hours so I mean and the good thing about ours is we have kind of a little bit of a buffer it's not just like a day and a night shift we do have like that 
kind of like an ER. There's like some overlap with us. Also, we do have a shift in between days and nights. So there is a little bit of a buffer if, you know, if we get off late and we are coming in at like 8 or 9 p.m., like there is still a team on at that time. So there is there is some wiggle room there for like just automatically kind of built in as well. Obviously, it's a really challenging job. It's a high stress environment. You know, people's lives are at stake. Um, there's a lot of pressure. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about Obviously, you have to be extremely strong mentally to be able to keep your cool and, and get this done. Um, and, you know, also know that, like, at, at a certain point, there's only so much you can do. Um, and so I kind of want to talk about what that's like for you as far as your mental health and um, what you do to take care of yourself and how you, I mean, are you really good at compartmentalizing or do you have any advice for people who may not be in transport nursing, but maybe they're in ICU nursing or wanting to get into another kind of critical care situation where the pressure is high and you do lose patients. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a stressful time and nurses by nature are, I think, very empathetic. Um, and so how do you kind of protect yourself and get back to like staying you know, mentally sane with, with all that you go through. I think it was, it was a huge, it's been a career long process for me. You know, I think the ICU I came from was so high in acuity. I mean, we had so many codes, so many deaths. And so it's like, you know, you have to find what works for you. And I was not good at compartmentalization for probably the first 18 months at all in my, in my ICU job, just because you know, that's one thing they can't teach you in school, especially if you go in into, you know, a high acuity area right out of school. They can't, you can't simulate that, that feeling that you feel when like you had this patient for so long and then they traumatically coded and, you know, they didn't make it. You can't prepare yourself for something like that. It unfortunately is just something if you are going into this type of environment, like you just have to kind of brace yourself and just kind of go along with it because there's nothing that you can do to really mentally prepare. And I, you know, I was very naive to that. And so I think if you kind of go in with that awareness of like, okay, it's going to happen and I'm probably going to feel a certain way about it. I don't know what that feeling necessarily is, but just kind of anticipating that I think is, you know, could be beneficial for some people. I know it would have been beneficial for me because I don't know why it was just so shocking to me. Like that feeling of, you know, because we're human beings, like, especially if you've been caring for people, like for, you know, an ICU patient for however many shifts in a row and something happens and they pass away, like that's really difficult. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people really touch on about how, yes, it's horrific for the family, 100%. It is horrific when it happens, but you also feel some type of way about it. And I would take it home and I would like ruminate in it and I just would feel some level of guilt, even though I know it wasn't me type thing. And so I think just over the years, like learning, I said, okay, Hensley, you can feel this grief for 24 hours and then we've got to keep going. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm good now, like letting myself feel a certain way, whatever that needs to be, feel sad, angry, whatever. And then you've just, you, unfortunately, you've got to move on because in order to go back to work, you have to be able to move forward. And I think I really hit like kind of a, a fork in the road when I was an a newer nurse I was probably almost two years into my job I had a really traumatic code and I was like I don't know if I can come back from this and I just kind of had to decide I'm like move like you either you either you're gonna either have to do something else or you're just gonna have to make the decision up in your mind you know remember but move on and I think finding those outlets you know whether it's going for a run writing in a journal talking to Going to therapy, we love therapy. Um, going to therapy, just doing something to kind of remind yourself that it's okay and that the world does keep turning. It's like as a nurse, like in order to keep going back, you have to you have to find a way to move on. 
Um, and as far as like dealing with the pressure of this job, I mean, that was a whole other set of challenges in and of itself, because it really is you on, on that helicopter. And, you know, when things happen, it's hard to think, you know, could I have done this? Could I have done that? Did I do this right? Which is why I'll always ask physicians or like I'll run things by, you know, my team members that have been trans that have been transport nurses much longer than me, kind of what they would do just to better myself for the next time. And it's not anything, you know, necessarily like life and death, even it's just, you know, this is kind of what I did. This was the scenario. What would you have done if you were in my shoes? And I think that, especially in this type of environment where there is so much pressure, asking people, humbling yourself and asking people that know better than you is the most, if you can do that, I mean, I think not necessarily you'll be set, but you'll set yourself up for more success if you can humble yourself in that way. It's invaluable. I think when you can, it's a, I don't think, I don't think um, this is a trait characteristic that everyone has. I can relate to what you're saying because in my life, I'm very similar. If there's something that I come at some sort of um, thing that happens and I handle it a certain way, I will kind of go back and look at it from every angle and every perspective that I can and think, okay, where could I have improved here? What could I have done better? Could anything that I have done change this scenario or, or fixed it or whatever, whatever it is that I'm trying to do, but I will ask others opinions. And it's not that it's not that you're not sure of yourself and the decisions you made in the moment, but it's, totally. it's, it's a collaborative effort of saying, well, from your perspective, what would you have done? And that's a great way. That's, that only makes you not only an incredible nurse, but also I think a better human being because totally. in all aspects of our lives, if we can go through and try to understand from other other perspectives like there's things we miss all the time and absolutely right when someone is sick it's it's we're all unique every single person on the planet is unique so the way that i get sick is, even if we had the same sickness is not going to be the way that your body handles the sickness we're going to have yeah. failures in our bodies in different ways and different strengths and so you know it's part of that is like a guessing game like what's going to work on one patient might not work on another patient but by guessing, all the time yeah by getting that invaluable information then when you can recognize okay this patient is similar to a patient i had before now they're not the same but they have similarities now what what maybe would have worked for them can this possibly work for this patient rather than more guessing around but I think what you're talking about is extremely valuable. I would always say to people, always ask questions, always oh, try yes. to uncover more truth and just uh, un uncover more possibilities of a situation because um, I feel like it's like a lock. There's a million different passcodes you could use. <laughs> and There's so many. Yeah, so. And yeah, I definitely think for a job like this, you have to come into it with a lot of self-awareness of your own skill set. And also, I just, you know, because I've talked about this among kind of peers as well. Recently, I had two of them come visit me and we all kind of said the same thing. Like you have to come into this job, especially if you're on the younger end, you have to come into this job with so much humility because you are scratching the surface of your career. And if you don't, and you just think that you know everything, like you are not setting yourself up for success in any type of way, like coming at this job with a lot of humility and a lot of self-awareness is so important because you have to know what you don't know. And if you think that you know everything, you don't. Yeah. And your nursing um, healthcare in general is, I feel like one of the only careers or maybe the only career where, well, I guess, um, you know, first responders and stuff as well, but is a career where yeah. you can die multiple people can die in a shift that you're on and you have to just continue as if nothing happened. I mean, you have to continue, continue doing your job and not be emotionally affected by this trauma that you just experienced. Because even if you don't know the person that well, even if you haven't had shifts with them, it's still a human life. It's still going to make you feel something, you know? So in that expectation of like, Oh, I lost a patient. And now I have to, I have to go take another call and I have to go and I have to go give all my, all my best for this other next patient. That has to be just, 
it's, it's the strength that you and everyone who does that has is just it's unfathomable and I think it's um it's not talked about enough because you know then you have to go home on like your personal time mm-hmm. you know and then you have to like deal with all the emotional aspects of what you experience um but I think the advice that you gave is so smart because you know just let it feel it but just don't stay there and I think people they either refuse to feel it they push it down so far that they just keep going and they don't deal with it or they deal with it and they just stay there for way too long and and grief is funny that way and um you know affects people differently but I think the advice that you said was just perfect where it's like I let I let myself for 24 hours and then I have to like get up and move on to the next patient so that I can be my best in service of others moving forward but that doesn't mean that you don't feel things but I think yeah cap on it you're like okay like I I understand I can't feelings aren't bad or good like we got to get them out somehow we can't just let them sit in our bodies so let me feel it and then if I'm still feeling it past 24 hours I got to say nope we're done we can't we got to move on you have to set really strong boundaries with yourself and with the job like you really do necessary skills to set those boundaries because especially in a high acuity area it will eat you alive if you don't set those boundaries with yourself and with your job that constant in your face that you're with your career facing these people who are very sick or on the verge of death or you know very extremely vulnerable um i would think that would make you um value life in a different way um because you're surrounded so much by the opposite about by like the end of the life or the fighting for the life um that it would make you kind of just value your time even more and and value and appreciate the preciousness that is life and the gift that we have every day to just be here and be alive and be healthy um you have any thoughts on that it really does kind of put it into a certain perspective. Dad, you know, my dad was in the ICU. I, I lost him and he was in the ICU for two months. And um, so yeah, I, but I, 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 I was there all the time. And so I, I observed a lot of things. Some were um, interesting to me, like a lot of healthcare workers, like down, like overnight shifts, like three energy drinks, you know? And then like, you're literally surrounded by people who are, in critical condition, whether it's an accident or whether it's because of other things that you would think the, that you would be more conscientious of what you're putting in your body. But I found that after my dad passed, I started drinking a lot of, um, Cokes a lot, like so much sugar. (laughs) And I like, it was almost like a self-sabotage thing, like almost just dealing with the grief and the stress and whatever. And I liked the taste of Coca-Cola. So it was here me drinking Cokes and I thought about it and I'm like, wow, you know, when you're really stressed out, even though it's it's so counterintuitive, right? You're you're thinking, oh, I should be yeah. eating way more healthy. I shouldn't be eating these chips or the soda or these energy drinks or whatever it is. But for some reason, I found myself doing the opposite. And I find when I was in the hospital for those two months, I found a lot of healthcare workers kind of um, also emulating that and like doing the opposite. And so I just wonder. Um, are you, is that a battle you, you work? Or are you really conscientious about what you're putting in your body because of the, the preciousness that is life? Just kind of doing the best you can to like, kind of stay awake and like get through the shift because I mean, it is exhausting to stay up overnight, night after night and just, you know, and be, especially in an ICU and like be on and be able to think like, you know, sometimes it takes people a lot of caffeine. You're helping people, right? You're helping them towards being healthy, whatever that means for that individual person. But almost in order to give them that gift, you are kind of nurses in general, I think are kind of self-inflicting the unhealthiness on themselves to save the person to be healthy. It's this kind of weird cycle of like, okay, well, I have to work a 12-hour shift and I have to stay up and I don't have time to go get my lunch and I didn't have time to pack it. So I'm eating some Doritos and like whatever it is. And it's, and then on night shift, I imagine the amount of sleep that you get um, or the quality of your sleep, I can only relate because I did um, three 12-hour shifts in a row once, not in healthcare, but, um, and they were night shifts. And so it was like 6 p.m. to 6 
a.m. and then it was like an hour and a half drive each way. So it's another hour. Oh, and I found myself kind of wired when I got home at like 8 30 a.m. And then it would be like, okay, lock out the curtains, the night, whatever, the night, the night, uh, the eye shields and stuff. I found myself I could sleep for like four hours, four, five hours, and then I couldn't go back to sleep. Like I had that like anxiousness, like you get up, the sun's here, you know, whatever. So I know yeah. just, you know, and over time, if you're doing it in a short amount of time, even a couple of years, our bodies, you're young, like we can get through stuff, right? But those people who are doing it for years and years and years, it's like the toll that healthcare people take on their bodies in the service it really is wild to me because I'm like, wow, in the service of others, oh, you're gosh. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot, especially honestly, like sometimes after those shifts where I get off late from like a super critical call, like I am like, it takes me like two hours to like, I get home and it's like two hours just because, you know, the adrenaline that you feel from certain calls and stuff. I mean, it's, it's wild, like the way that, you know, a, the body works and handles stress and st in a very physical way. So yeah, I mean, it, it takes me sometimes a while, like fall asleep and like, you know, let it leave my brain for a little bit. Just because it's like sometimes those calls are super intense and you're just like you're worried about the patient too, like what happened after and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a battle constantly on night shift. Yeah. What do you do to physically get the stress out of your body? Do you run? I I am a workout girly for sure. I do, especially for something like that. Like it's just blast the music. Get the workout. You've got to find a way to metabolize it mentally also. So how do you maintain like a good work-life balance? Um obviously it's such a stressful job with all, all the mental aspects, emotional pressure, stress, all that stuff. And can you talk a little bit about what you'd like to do outside of work or fun, hobbies, interests, things you enjoy doing um in your free time? I love being outside. Like whenever I can get outside, the better I recently well, probably like six months ago I bought a paddleboard and I just for hours like I'll just go out on the water and just like paddleboard for hours just it's so quiet but it's so you know it's physical so it is a workout it's like a full body workout it's just like great to just kind of like get back out into nature like have some fresh air you know and just kind of be very present There's something very peaceful about being in nature and just connecting with yeah um, if you could go back and tell your younger self a piece of advice or um, something you wish your younger self had known or anything, any piece of advice that's just kind of your mantra or something that holds you hold dear to your heart. Do you have anything like that that you would give yourself? Like, again, like it's so cheesy, but it's like for every door that closes, like a better one's going to open. Like you just have to be patient and you just really have to trust the process because even at the bedside, you know, I went, I was, I went through a hard time and it was just like, it felt like a door was closing and I was just kind of like, where do I go from here? You know? And that's when this opportunity was presented. So you just never know what's going to be on the other side. You just have to, again, just keep going, like trust the process. It's all going to work out and be patient. Oh, I would tell myself to be patient for sure let everything happen the way it's supposed to happen. Continue to work hard, continue to go after your goals, but timing is everything. And just the timing will be perfect and it will align when it's supposed to align. Don't rush it. Enjoy it. Trust the process. That's it. You just have to ride the wave, especially as a new nurse. Ride the wave. Enjoy it. You're going to wish you were back here one day. You know, <laughs> like... It's such a fun time because it's, you're just constantly learning. You're absorbing so much. And I would, yeah, that's what I would tell my younger self. Trust the process, be patient, enjoy it, have fun with it, learn everything that you possibly can. Because there's going to be a time where you wish you were that new again. That's really good advice, especially in healthcare. There's a lot of times you can get discouraged. You can't pass the test or you have to take it again or, you know, you there's so many avenues of disappointment that can happen throughout life, no matter what you're doing. So I think that's really great advice that, you know, it, it's hard to hear in the moment when you, you the door totally. like, but I wanted that door, you know, yeah, like, I wanted it so bad. I thought I deserved it. I worked really hard for it. X, Y, Z, but it's like, it wasn't meant for you then. If you worked so hard and you did all these necessary steps, then you're meant for something else.
and again, that's another thing I would tell myself, you are meant for something else. Mm-hmm. Like, period, point blank. If a door closes and you did all this necessary work that you felt like you were supposed to do, take the feedback and keep going because something else is just around the corner. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Can you tell me what your stethoscope meant to you? I w- I've been an MDF for lifer um, long before this, like long before this. But it was just kind of like that moment of like, oh my gosh, like it's me. I am the nurse type thing. It was almost like a little, a little hit of reality also <laughs> that, okay, I am, I am the nurse now. And it's just like a cool experience to have when you're, you know, whenever you graduate nursing school, whether you're 22 or you're in your 40s, like, which is the great thing about nursing is you can start at any age, maybe even older than 40. But it's like, you can start at any age. It's surreal because it's something that you've like worked for and you've envisioned yourself doing for so long. And then it's like, oh, wow. So the stethoscope is mine. The scrubs are mine. The badge is mine. I can clock in and like actually get into the unit. <laughs> and it doesn't say student, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool experience, which is why I tell people don't wish it away. Be excited about your first stethoscope. Be excited about your first hospital badge. Like it's such a fun season to be in. And it's, you know, just don't wish it away because then and always feel the joy, you know, always feel the joy of that first stethoscope. We all geeked out over our <laughs> first stethoscopes and stuff. I mean, I know I did. Like, and my friends too, you know, like everyone geeked out over it. So geek out over it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the process. Because there will be a time when you're not in it and you wish that you were. It's like when I was little, my parents were like, you're going to want this back. Like, you're the best time you're like, you don't even know it. And I'm like, whatever, I want to be an adult so I can pay my own bills and like do whatever. Exactly. Oh, overrated. <laughs> so overrated. Oh my overrated. God. Overrated. An adult is overrated. Adulting is overrated. I agree. Um, so for everyone listening and watching, they're going to want to know where to follow you. Um, I know you're, you're big on TikTok, uh, a lot of content over there. I think you do have an Instagram, but I'm not sure if that's a place where people can go follow, but can you go ahead and drop wherever people can come find you if they want to follow you or talk to you more, ask you questions. And if you wouldn't mind when you say it, if you could also just spell it out for people who are just auditory and feet listening, um, that yeah. way. So I want to say on TikTok right now. I am Nurse Hen, so N-U-R-S-E-H-E-N-S. And I want to say my at is just Hens, H-E-N-S. Um, that's what everyone calls me. It's obviously short for Hensley. Um, I'm mainly on TikTok. I mainly, that's where I put all of my nursing stuff. I'm starting to dabble in Instagram, but I, I don't know. Instagram's like a whole other beast for me. <laughs> Same handle as TikTok. Hensley, thank you so much for joining our Crafting Wellness podcast. Uh, you're very inspiring. We love watching you um, and all the content you make and the awesome career that you're doing and being there for people during these really chaotic times in their lives. Uh, it's really cool to watch and we're rooting for you. So I just want to say thank you so much for your taking the time to join us today. And um, we, we value and appreciate you so much. No, thank you guys. Again, like I have loved the company for years. So when I saw... I think you guys like liked something like, you know, a couple months ago, I was like, oh my gosh, like I have to send them a message, you know? So this has been really, it's been really cool for me, you know, little new grad hens, we would like, you know, be screening and stuff. So thank you so much for your time and having me on.